You're listening to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Well, welcome back to Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. Super, super excited to be back with you all today. Uh, I don't know about where you are in uh, the world, but man, there's been a lot of snow in here in Tennessee, not what we're used to. There's been a lot of snow, <laughs> I think, in Indiana as well with the other guys. Um, yeah. <laughs> Lots, yeah. well so, over a foot, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, we we got strange stuff here. Um, it, it's not, I don't even, even call it snow. It's like walking in sand. It's very, very different. cold sand. It's cold sand. Yeah. <laughs> Any, anyway. Um, sand. Cold sand? <laughs> That's a weather technical term. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, super, super excited about this episode for y'all to hear. We've got Enneagram legend, uh, he's a real serious legend, mm-hmm. Tom Condon. He's worked with the Enneagram since 1979. And man, oh this God. guy is just full of wisdom and knowledge and information. Yeah, I, I, I don't know what else to say about this guy besides I'm just, he's super, super impressive. He's been around the Enneagram and been teaching it for uh, more than most people in the Enneagram world. He's, he's done mm-hmm. over 900 workshops. He's got 50 plus uh, audio books and, and, and things on his website for, for sale. He's just an impressive guy. Yeah, I feel like we're we're on a roll with our guests right now. I don't know how we keep getting such amazing guests, hmm. but Condon is yeah. a legend, you know, really? and that yeah. is not an understatement. So I'm really excited for our audience to, uh, for those that don't know him, be introduced to him. And I actually think he has some of the best metaphors for what mm. type is. That's true. Uh, of any teacher I've heard, like his ability to connect like symbolism and imagery mm-hmm. to type is really profound. Uh, he's a sharp thinker. He has a quick wit as well, uh, yeah. which which comes through sometimes, even in, in spite of, we had a few technical difficulties here or there, but he's funny, <laughs> he's engaging, and uh, I really enjoyed this conversation with him. Yeah, like you said, Drew, the, his, what really struck me as I was re-listening to the episode was the how vivid his language is and how you can as he's describing things, you can feel exactly what he's trying to describe. Um, it, yeah. It's just it's just so helpful. And he's one of my favorite teachers out there, for sure. I mean, he actually has an actual background in mental health, which is um, so, so important. And it's um, it really shows how he's been able to marry both the, the Enneagram and psychology together um, in such a powerful way mm-hmm. that... It really, really helps. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoy it. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Tom is that he really cares about the point of the Enneagram transformation. You know, his website's called Change Works. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's he's all about change. He's all about how do you partner the Enneagram with real methods, uh, practical methods for engaging what it looks like to to uh, become the healthiest version of ourselves. And it, this, this, this episode is, is full of that. So I'm super excited for everybody to, to hear this. Well, greetings, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on, man. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So how's it going where you are? How, how has uh, how's life been for you during a global pandemic? It hasn't been onerous for me, uh, Unfortunately, it's onerous for lots of people. Yeah. The only curtailment, if that's a word, <laughs> is uh, being 
off the road. Uh, uh, I, mm-hmm. I'm used to traveling a lot and haven't been anywhere for a year now. Wow. Which is kind of yeah. a, kind of a record in my adult wow. life. Wow. Yeah, I think I've heard that you're one of the most traveled Enneagram teachers. Well, I've been to a lot of countries. <laughs> do, you, do you have a number of how many countries you've been to? About 50. Oh, my. Yep, that's a lot. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know there were that many. <laughs> There's 195, I think. Oh, all right, all right. okay. Awesome. Well, um, <laughs> well, one of the things we wanted to start off with was um, getting some insight into your background story, man, some of your, primarily your Enneagram backs, background story. So we'd love to hear some of that, but also then what it is that you do with the Enneagram in the world today. Well... I lived in Berkeley, California in 1980, and the Enneagram was in the air. Mm. And Mm. prior to that, I'd been involved with NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and Ericksonian Hypnosis. They were kind of companion disciplines. I had a private practice, and I was working with NLP in particular, which I should say is about the structure of subjective experience and also about methods for change. But it's very behavioristic in the sense that it just kind of takes an isolated pattern and works with it and alters the sensory qualities of it, let's say. Or, I mean, there's it's very elaborate and complicated. But the value of it is that it gives you a perspective, a sort of meta perspective on techniques of change. And you can start to recognize the, um, them in different disciplines. And they're they're dressed up differently, but really the pattern is the same. I was reaching a point with NLP where I was finding its limits. And the, it, it's not a good system for understanding the whole person. Mm. And about that time, I came across the Enneagram, which was, like I say, in the air. A lot of my therapist friends knew it and had been exposed to it through Helen Palmer or Claudio Naranjo. The Enneagram in those days was mostly kind of focused on the negative pathological aspects of Hmm. uh, behavior from the different Enneagram styles. Even the names were insulting in those days. Um, (laughs) My own style, I'd be a counterphobic six. But in those days, they just called it coward. Oh, oh man. Oh, my. <laughs> Which was kind of, kind of hard to wrap your, rounds, your arms around. But, yeah. you know, there was a mountain of evidence in my case that I, I was a six. So. Is, there, is there a reason that you point to that it kind of started off as pretty negative? Well, it's the via negativa, I think. It's got a spiritual background in the sense yep. that you know, you're supposed to get really, really upset about your sins so that you're motivated mm. to improve. Mm. Yeah. I'd, mm. In a okay. nutshell, I'd say that's what it was. And also, yeah. the people that I knew were therapists, and therapists get paid to call people names for a living. <laughs> I can't the, wait to share that with some of my therapist friends. Well, <laughs> you know, you're, you're supposed to diagnose. and Yeah. So the emphasis was on diagnosis and the fallen state that right. your Enneagram style brought you and the, all the, the complications of that. So it, there, there wasn't this kind of range. I much appreciated later when Don Rizzo came out with his first book, hmm. 
and described the manifestations of different Enneagram styles in terms of a spectrum from healthy to really unhealthy. That right. made a lot more sense to me. And But for the time being, it was mostly bad news. And there were very few methods that were recommended to, uh, to get over these unfortunate things about yourself. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of them was... Now that you've learned all these negative things about yourself, you really shouldn't meditate. That was one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the other one was uh, in a, there's a YouTube video with the comedian Bob Newhart playing a psychiatrist. Yes. And I just watched that last night. <laughs> yeah, you know that one. Yeah, so a woman goes in to see him and she's a bundle of nerves and she's, Got all kinds of phobias and complaints, and just is uh, her main fear is that somebody's going to capture her and lock her in a box. And the psychiatrist kind of sits there and he listens, and then after a while he says, "Okay, I've got a piece of advice for you. I w I want you, you know, to listen to me, and I want you to hear this." And the woman says, "Oh yes, anything. You know, just uh, tell me anything." He said, are you sure? Are you ready? Yes, yes, oh, absolutely, if it'll help. Okay, here's my piece of advice. Stop it. Stop it. What are you, nuts? Uh, classic. That was great. Uh, if only and that, that really was sort of the gist of the recommendations in the early days about what to do about the mm. low side manifestations of your Enneagram style. Is just yeah, knock yeah. it off. You're <laughs> you're a one. You're judgmental. Stop it. You know you're a six. You scare yourself. Guys, cut that out. Yeah. Uh, in so, other words, the recommendation. I'm portraying it unfairly, perhaps, but the recommendation was to go against, right. to identify your neurotic tendency, and then to try to do something else. Or interrupt the pattern. Mm -hmm. Find other ways to fulfill whatever needs it's fulfilling. It feels like a pretty perfect segue to step into, um, you talk about methods for change. And that's honestly one of the, when we were in Chicago with, uh, with Russ, when you talked about that, that's, that has been sticking in my mind ever since then. Uh -huh. Would you mind just kind of sharing with our audience uh, what, what, what your four methods for change are? I have a bunch of different models. And mm. the Enneagram is about type, but actually people are individuals, turns out. Mm. Turns and <laughs> adapting what you do to each person is important, I think. Mm. But if you're, you know, uh, if you're working to help them grow and change in some way. But there are, the, the methods in my mind do generally fall into four different categories. The, the methods that I use, the methods that I witness other people using in relation to the Enneagram. One of them is what I call standing back, and that's where you develop a, an observer in the way that they recommend. You know, it's like self-awareness. Mm -hmm. It's like dissociating a little bit from your reactions and mm -hmm. standing back and witnessing them rather than uh, reacting. Learning about the Enneagram, learning about yourself, learning in greater detail, in some in ways that land for you that really you know make sense that that would be part of it as well 
kind of even some of these intellectual mo- intellectualizing models that go with the Enneagram, some of them are, are helpful in a way in terms of gathering information, in terms of recognizing that there's you and then there's your Enneagram style. You, mm-hmm. you have a template, you have a reality strategy, you have a way of reacting, but it's not necessarily who you are deep down in your heart of hearts. And yeah. being able to recognize that is, is a good first step. Mm. If you stand back and that's all you do, then you're likely to find change kind of difficult and mm. it takes a long time. There's a second class, which would be the which would go along with Bob Newhart, uh, the stop it class, which is to say, <laughs> doing something else, interrupting your pattern. You're a four, and you start to sink into a mood, and you recognize it from your standing back, and you get up and go for a walk, or you do something else, do something different. And that's kind of helpful as well, you know, to Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. interrupt the pattern, recognize the pattern as such, and then kind of mess with it in some way. A third class of methods, I would say, is what I call going with. And by that, I mean you delve into reactions. You delve into and, and allow your reactions. And you, when you're really cognizant of the low side of your Enneagram style and the sensory qualities that go with it, mm-hmm. and you really start to recognize it, then it would be sinking into it instead and yielding to it and uh, surrendering to it in a way and trying to get at what you're trying to do for yourself. The assumption built into the, a number of methods like that is that is deep down you're trying to defend yourself you're trying to maybe you're fighting an old battle maybe you are uh, reacting in a way that used to make sense you are Mm -hmm. reacting out of a learned set of circumstances uh, early in life and now you're reproducing them 30 40 years later And in that reproduction, there's still a kind of intent. There's still a kind of belief in the method that you that that saved you. Mm -hmm. But what we find, of course, in life as we get older is that the things that once saved us are now the things that get in the way. And so we've got a reaction and we've got a certain intention behind it, a certain defensive intention. And Yet, we're defending ourselves, we're fighting an old battle. We're defending ourselves against phantoms uh, or something like that. It's not always that, but right, right. sinking into it, accepting it, going, allowing certain emotions to exist that you otherwise would avoid. And in doing that, you, you sort of get to the bottom of it. And, of course, you know when you sink into emotions or you sink into a reaction, or you sink into an inner state, it never lasts. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's a sort of way to kind of apprehend where you're coming from on a deeper unconscious level. And yet at the same time, when you stay with emotions or you stay with inner states, they turn into something else often. 
So that would be another class of methods, another class of approaches. And then the fourth one that I recognize and kind of teach in workshops or used to is um, going towards. And what that means is it's something that meditators often experience, which is a, an opening, uh, opening towards the future, but opening towards various levels within yourself, opening to what is beyond your personal self in a spiritual sense. And in that opening, there, you're not only very present, but also there's a sort of direction suggested towards the future. Mm-hmm. And another thing that can go with it that's kind of useful is modeling. Modeling other people, mm. modeling yourself when you're at your best. By modeling, I mean sort of take, it's, it's what you do when you have a, a mentor, for example, or children model themselves on adults. And what you're trying to do is sort of step into the shoes of what it would feel like and seem like and sound like to mm-hmm. be further along than you believe you are. Mm. And yeah. in that modeling, you could find examples of people that represented the high side of your Enneagram style. But also, to somebody with a background in NLP, most of the, the Enneagram is like a map of resources and potentials. I mean, it's also a map of you know, your fallen state. But it is, you know, you have uh, a central Enneagram style and there's a high side to it. For me, the wings really work. And there's a high side to both of those. There's a high side to what they used to call stress and security points. Mm-hmm. They're what you're like when you're at your best and manifesting those. There's a high side to the subtypes also. The The rendering of the subtypes from the beginning has been mostly negative and i that didn't make any sense to me because mm-hmm. it would be like saying an enneagram style itself is only negative and if you think about it or start to kind of take on the idea and track it in your own experience or track it in the experience of people that you know well what you find is that subtypes each one of them is a resource and you might be stronger in one of them or two of them, but they're all there, and they're all useful. Yeah. And then there's also the Enneagram styles of your parents. Uh, mm. you, you carry those with you to a degree as well. With these methods of change, uh, or for change, would you say that uh, applying them, you need to apply all of them? I guess I can see, I can see scenarios in which someone only does the stepping back, and then they end up just living in their head, observing, 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 and and just never actually dropping down into their heart, for instance. Right. Or like going right. against, like just kind of that aid energy of just like always like punishing yourself on some level. Um, wh- for you, what is this, what is, the, what is the difference between applying these well and in a, in a presence, presenced manner and, and not? Usually more than one is necessary. I'm mm, describing okay. classes of methods rather than sure. the methods themselves. Mm. Yeah, but okay. usually some combination of uh, two or three of them is really a lot better. 
So you're standing back, you're observing yourself, but then also you you're overcome by an emotional reaction or a fear or shame or anger and you allow it and you you try and get to the bottom of it. Russ Hudson will talk about being fully aware of an inner state related to the low side of your Enneagram style and then surrounding that with presence, surrounding that mm. with a present awareness of where you are and who you are and what your sensations are, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can feel. Mm. And that would be kind of consistent with this idea also. That's really helpful. And I can see ways in which you know, in my own life where uh, multiple methods of change would have been helpful, you know, with hindsight, mm -hmm. or I've seen it when it's when it's worked well. So I think those categories, yeah, can be really helpful. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your approach to personality. I read your book, The Dynamic Enneagram, which you know, we uh -huh. will make sure to point our audience to because I, I think it's a fantastic resource for understanding your, your approach and methods for change. And, but a quote struck me that I wanted to read to you and then and just have you maybe respond to as, mm -hmm. um, as it relates to your approach to the Enneagram style. So you say in the book, an Enneagram style is a lot like a nationality. Both define you and yet with them you're an individual. Both are deeply unconscious and shape your perceptions in involuntary ways. Both your nationality and your Enneagram style are, are simultaneously deep and yet shallow, parts of you that are apart from you at the same time. And so I'm wondering how this approach yeah, helps inform these method of change and helps us maybe have a more balanced understanding of the Enneagram as to not just being all negative <laughs> or maybe on the other side of the spectrum, all positive, right? Right. Well, it'd be like accepting the fact that you have a, an unconscious template. You have a reality strategy. You have yeah. a way of moving through the world and your unconscious favors this particular style that you've landed on, or some people say you were born with. And recognizing that and accepting that is, is, is a good thing. And then also trying to, I don't know, I, I wrote that in order to sort of put across that there are profound differences in people, and yet people are all the same. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it's. I, I travel right. around the world, and I have traveled around yeah. the world, and it's always struck me that human beings are the same everywhere, mm -hmm. and their cultures make them different. Yeah, yeah. fascinating. Um, and then related to this, you talk in your book about uh, the law of secondary gains, mm -hmm. um, which I think are, are many in our audience probably have never heard of. And um, I wonder if you could just talk about, uh, explain it and maybe just t talk a little bit about how that impacts our Enneagram style. Well, it's not really a law, but secondary gains refer to the intention behind behavior and what you think you're doing for yourself, how you think you're protecting yourself. There's a lot of fancy talk about uh, getting rid of egos altogether in the right. Enneagram universe. But 
I think that kind of ignores and is actually sort of bad manners, ignores the way in which egos function and the fact that you're sort of hardwired to have one. And they do a lot for you. And so just condemning them is sort of like condemning your left arm or something like that. Hmm. And But secondary gains um, have to do with defensive stances that people adapted early in life, ways in which they over-favored one aspect of their experience and under-emphasized another aspect of their experience. They could be born into a family that expects them to be a, a hero or a success or a failure or a peacemaker or whatever. And what that usually entails is some kind of splitting. Hmm. Now, people didn't, lots of people didn't have traumatic childhoods, but they might have had pressures to play a certain role within a, a vacuum that exists within their family system. And so they over-identify with aspect of their experience and push away another. Maybe they project it. Maybe they they see it in other people. Maybe they marry it when they get older. Hmm. But they're they're split. And resolving the the split between oh let's say a three who is driven to succeed and then as they kind of explore themselves they find a, a, a sort of younger part of them that is awkward or has a, a kind of flaw or there's a kind of Achilles heel or there's a kind of self-doubt and they're trying to outrun that. You know, they're trying to outrun their shadow. It doesn't work, but it No, it doesn't. It does. I'm, I'm a, my style's a three. <laughs> so Well, it, it does it lead to a lot of accomplishment, but it, yeah. it may not, you know, it doesn't help you integrate what you need to integrate. Right. Right. But there's, you know, there are various functions that I think are kind of naturalistic and characteristic of egos and things like uh, predicting the future and sort of organizing experience so that you don't get overwhelmed by sensory detail. There's a role, there's a way in which you have a self-concept, a, a self-image that usually is consistent with your Enneagram style. Yeah. I had a teacher one time who used to say, the goal of therapy is to get over the bad dream of being only your self-image. Yeah. Mm. Which I thought was kind of nice. But yeah. uh, appreciating the fact that your Enneagram style, your ego does a lot for you and is trying to do a lot for you. Yeah. And on other levels, you know, those are what it's trying to do may be questionable or maybe back to front. Sixes scare themselves in order to be safe. That doesn't make any sense, but it does. It does to yeah. sixes. Eights will dominate and bully their vulnerabilities out of their awareness, and mm. that was once the best choice possible. Mm, that right. was once a a good strategy for surviving in the world as you understood it early in life. It's just that now it's. You know, the thing that saved you is now the thing that's getting in your way. Right. Huh. Tom, Tom, backtracking real quick. Um, this is kind of reminding me of a quote from a, I don't remember if he's a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but James Hollis, who says the protections of the past are the prisons of today. Um, yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me of your analogy of type as an igloo. And, and, and you go into describing some of the types like, like you just have been, but what I hear you saying is like how we feel in control 
is by defending against being hurt in the same way where we were in childhood, right? Is that right? Well, it's it's trying to cauterize a wound that, yeah. and you you're trying to put scar tissue over it, but you're not quite finished with it, and so you split off from it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. it's in the body, it's in the emotions. It can be, it's certainly multisensory, mm. and you know people will have kind of uh, edges of their uh, of their version of the world that they don't dare go near until mm-hmm. they're motivated to do so. And the motivation comes in the form of evolutionary pressure in adult life. You know, right. the mm-hmm. things we used to do now don't quite work the same way. Or I'm a five and I grew up in a, an emotionally remote family and we, we played board games and that was our way of being together. And now I have uh, a family and children and my children don't understand when I want to play board games. They don't even know what they are. <laughs> and you know it's, it's, it's that kind of thing where it's just back it's back to front yeah could you give us a couple examples type specific about how we how we try to stay in control when we're doing our type like as a nine i know that i tend to re- not re- uh delete myself in order to so that i'm not going right. to be deleted by other people first right 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 and that is what you, that's one thing you start to do is to do it to yourself before anyone else can but also yeah. deleting yourself uh, is part of the strategy. Mm. Going to sleep to what you're passionate about, or what you deep down need, or what you really believe, or what you you know your the values of your best self. Putting those aside in order to say avoid conflict. Right. And you know this is based on memory. All of these things are. They're based on remembering what used to happen in a way that then became like a skill, like an unconscious skill to, in the case of a nine, you delete yourself. There's another level where you're angry. There's another level under that where you're, where there's a self who's hiding. And the hiding part of it is a lot different from Enneagram descriptions that say, oh, well, the, you know, nines have mental fog. (laughs) <laughs> you know, like the fog rolls yeah. in and then it burns off in the afternoon, that kind <laughs> yeah. of thing. Yeah. Uh, that's a nice, nice passive uh, exculpatory description. <laughs> yeah. But actually, on another level, you're hiding. There's mm. a self who's hiding. And the self is usually sort of sad and needs to mm. kind of get past, maybe express that, but then get past a sort of grief about the cost of hiding. Totally. I usually say I'm more of a gas than a solid. That's how mm-hmm. I stay safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've worked with nines over the years where you ask them to focus in on themselves and they, they go blank. Or they see, a f- <laughs> they see a fog. Or they yeah. see a wall. Or they see something obstructive. And that's, a, that's actually a kind of visual expression of the, the sense of hiding. Uh, there are other styles, like I mentioned, eights sort of bullying themselves into submission so that they suppress their vulnerabilities. And the idea is they're trying to protect their vulnerabilities by overpowering them, mm, the, by being, you know, being strong and being forceful and, and uh, being outward focused. 
but actually their vulnerabilities are are there that's just what yeah. they're trying to manage you mm-hmm. know they're trying to manage whatever wounds go go with their memory of being that vulnerable or whatever it depends on the person but um with sevens for example there's a lot of emphasis on seven the pattern of seven and the the way in which sevens are escapist but if you have like an nlp background one of the things you're looking for is what prompts it how did it start to begin with what was the step before the step that you were aware of and mm. the you know it's sort of delving into the unconscious part of it but there are sevens who have a pattern where they're sort of breaking out of jail and mm-hmm. uh, escaping and then they get caught and put back into jail for a longer sentence and huh. Usually somewhere in their emotions, there is, and it is emotional, there is a part of them that feels locked in a psychological closet or limited in some way, uh, judged in some way, uh, bored to tears in some way, and trapped. Mm -hmm. And so if a seven goes into a new situation and they find curiously that they feel trapped again, that's that part of them. In other words, they brought it to the party. Yeah. They, and working with that sense in the body and in the emotions of being trapped is a lot more useful than, I don't know what else, trying to, trying to wrangle the excesses of gluttony, for example. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I think what I hear you saying is if we can't learn to be vulnerable and curious with our sort of idealized self-image that we tend to perpetuate our pattern stuckness without knowing it. Yeah, it is the pattern. Yeah, yeah. it is the pattern. Could you do uh, yours? Six? Well, with six, what you're, what you're doing when you're in the trance of it is you're trying to scare yourself in order to be safe. That's oh, fascinating. This made sense a long time ago. Uh, I grew up around Irish alcoholics and... If you saw, if I saw someone take a drink, uh, my mind went to trying to predict the weather in the household, because there could be an irrational argument about the peas at the dinner table, something that was just crazy and kind of out of the blue. And so imagining what could happen became a kind of safety measure under a circumstance like that. Yeah. Now, decades later, it's pretty paradoxical you know you're Mm -hmm. trying to you're trying to anticipate what can go wrong and you're trying to imagine various scenarios but then you're scaring yourself and making yourself feel young and helpless Mm -hmm. (laughs) in order to be strong (laughs) right Right. it's it's cuckoo but we're all cuckoo in this, yeah. in this sense, the, or, exactly or put right. another way, personality defenses are kind of cuckoo. Yeah. Mm. How do you see like people that experience capital T trauma? I've been trying to find information about like trauma and enneotype and how they interact, but there, there doesn't seem to be a lot out there, at least that I've found. Um, in your work, how have you seen capital T trauma and the any and and someone's type? Uh, coalesce does it does it just make it stronger is it does it inform the type structure how how does how do those interact in your opinion well sixes for example if they've gone through a bunch of trauma essentially have ptsd Mm. and 
as you begin to, there are ways to work on that uh, that come out of NLP that I think are really quite good. Mm-hmm. And also mm-hmm. um, the work of Peter Levine, the work of uh, Francine Shapiro, those kind of approaches, they're, they're body-based approaches, but also you're, you know, you're trying to sort of exorcise a sense of trauma that you kind of carry in your nervous system and maybe in your musculature. And I don't know, you know, it's different for different styles. You could guess that somebody had been traumatized from the the degree to which they're attached to the trance of their Enneagram style. Mm. Mm. Uh, Somebody who's an eight, they might be extra forceful because in their mind, they're actually living in a jungle or they're living in a war zone. And so uh, when you understand that, their actions make sense. But they have right. a war in their head, and then they're, you know, trying to come out on top and be the strongest animal in the jungle or be victorious in a war. But the war is all kind of uh, unconscious and based on their memories, mm. based on what happened to them and how they adapted early on. Right. So, so would you say on some level, uh, if, if two people experience the exact same traumatic experience, their type would inform how they interact with it or how they perceived it? Is that... How they how defend against it. How they defend against For it. For sure. Okay. I see. Yeah. How they, Interesting. You know, what, they, how, what they're barricaded against and a typical a way that is typical of their style to, to barricade and palisade against. I personally would love it, Tom, if you could just finish out the types with the way that we defend against. Well, uh, for example, you think of a one mm-hmm. and they're using their critical voice. They're tensing their body uh, often if they're in, in the one trance. There's a certain amount of body tension, a certain amount of internal dialogue or monologue, and it's harder to see things, see images internally, but you can see them externally. Or maybe you can look at the outside world and see how it is, and then compare that to a, a sort of ideal utopian image in your mind's eye about how it should look. And then if you're deep in the one trance, then you blame the world for not looking like your inner picture. If you're uh, working on this and you know have gotten some distance from your own template and pattern and adaptation, then you tend to forgive the world uh, for being imperfect, but still have ideas about how to shape it up. Yeah. If you're a two, you can start to have a, a feeling or a need, and then you sort of suppress that and literally repress that. And then, or, and in the repression, you're sending it over to uh, someone else. You start to focus on other people. You start to focus on, it's like sending your inner child to live with the neighbors. <laughs> and, what you're trying to do is, uh, you know, sort of push away need because you, that's what you're inhibited about. Mm-hmm. There wasn't any room for that in your early experience of life, or uh, you took value and, and acceptance from other people uh, for the, the help that you could provide them with or the, the way that you compensated for their limitations. And so you're still doing it sometime later. And it's a kind of relocation of the self, relocation of needs. You don't know your emotional location after that. It kind of goes with pride. 
Because when with pride, you don't know your true size. <laughs> you know, it's mm. it's like you, it's like uh, that old movie with Robin Williams playing a genie, and the <laughs> the, the genie would be gigantic, and then it'd be minuscule, and it would just go kind of go back and forth and be constantly changing shape. It's are are like you that. referring to Aladdin? Is that what you're referring Aladdin. to? Yeah. Yes. I okay. Am. Okay. All right. I think. Yeah. I was yeah. like, does he play a genie in another movie? That's ironic. And with threes, you know, like I said before, you're trying to sort of outrun a sense of insecurity and an insecure self, a self who is uh, sort of the opposite. You're, you're trying to become the opposite of what you fear you are on another level. Hmm. The, the fear of what you are has to do with a sense of an Achilles heel, a flaw. In literal terms, you can think of um, somebody who grows up poor who wants to be rich, and maybe they get rich, but they still don't know it, or they don't believe it, because something in them mm -hmm. still feels like that poor kid, yeah. that kind of thing. The identification, what they call identification, is also called, it would also be modeling in yeah. NLP terms where you try to become someone new, but they, it, it's a skill in one way, and in another way, it's a defense. Yes. Which is true of a, true of a lot of yeah. defenses. I found actually. that to be true in my own life, for sure. A blessing and a curse. Yeah, yeah. So we're all, you know, Shakespeare characters. <laughs> That's right. Mm. Blessed and cursed by the same qualities. That's right, uh, yeah. That's very good. <laughs> With fours... It's there's a, a rejection of what is normal or ordinary, or this is done through comparison sometimes. Uh, being normal and ordinary is equated with being unlovable because you, mm. you, you know, you're not special, you're not uh, standing out, you're not unique in some way. And all three of those styles, two, three, and four, have a tendency to get lost in roles and confuse seeming with being, to confuse. The Oof. role that I'm playing and the feelings that I have as I play my role with my true feelings. Yeah. And as you grow and change, you find your way to the, your, your truer, deep-down feelings. Until then, you might be you know, caught up in trying to prove something. And with fours, it's sort of like you're proving that you're different, distinctive, the, the one who knows, the, the, the one who is... Uh, hard to understand, but that's still a marker of their uniqueness. The one who has limitations, I could never work in a bank, I'm a four. But those limitations are still related to a kind of ego trip, actually. Mm. This is not something to say directly to certain fours, because they'll take umbrage with it, but <laughs> these are all ego trips. Right. And then with five, six, and seven, you know, you've got fear types, mm -hmm. and you've got a, a way in which people scare themselves. And just as uh, framing what nines do in their trance as hiding, I find it useful to frame what five, sixes, and sevens do as ways they scare themselves, huh. rather than calling them fear types, which is a frozen permanent sounding condition <laughs> and with, with with five they scare themselves in you know uh, in relation to the expectations other people have uh, social context uh, how am I going to deal with this uh, person and their demands and you know various various other things but 
in the scaring of themselves, then they contract and disassociate and uh, move up into the turret of their castle, so to speak. Move, you know, try and live in their head and stay away from feelings, and then just you know maybe marry the marry someone who has a bunch of feelings. Yeah, that is so just fascinating. Thanks for doing that, man. Uh, appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fathoms, an Enneagram podcast. If you found this episode helpful in any way, consider sharing it with a friend or family member. We are so honored to be on this journey with you, discovering our inner depths, one fathom at a time. Truthwork Media Studios.